0: Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. All right, Mark Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 3. Do I have a congregation out there today? Okay, because I could have swore someone hit a birdie hut, because Brad said 13 baptisms, like, yeah, 13 baptisms, that's great. So we have someone out here today, right? Okay. Right? Okay. Okay. I I, I expect it. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm glad I'm not preaching myself today. All right. Mark chapter three. Calvin's going to read it for us. Mark three, one through six. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. If you're new to Hill City, our favorite way to approach Sundays in the Scriptures is to teach through verse-by-verse books of the Bible. That's kind of how we most of the time do it. Um, This series is different, and and today will be different. Uh, This text that he just read, I'll get to in a few minutes, Uh, but really it's going to just help provide a framework for what we're going to talk about today. So a little bit different on how we approach things during this series. Um, My goal today, just tell you from the beginning, is to give you a framework on how to approach the past trauma in our lives, the current harm, the current mistakes, the current failures. And that framework, if I had, I almost had my board up here, but I was like, they don't need to carry it down for this because I just need two words on it. Anger, with a sideways slash, whatever that's called. Sadness. Anger and sadness. As a framework to think through how to process the things in our lives. As a church, we want to do good and speak into, hopefully in an educated way, how to deal with emotional health. Um, I believe the church historically has handled this very poorly. I got an email this week from a lady in our church. Says uh, this, over the past year, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Um, She said, I was talking to one of my friends and telling him about that I've been diagnosed with this and I've been placed on medicine but this medicine was starting to help. So she had told her friend, her friend went to her friend's pastor and told him to which the friend and the pastor message this lady and say that she is in sin against God because she shouldn't need medication because Jesus is enough. the church historically has handled mental health very poorly. Like every single one of us, when we are sick, when our body is broken, where do we go? To the doctor, right? Royce is a doctor in our church. He's one of our elders. Every single elder meeting in our church turns into a doctor's visit at the end, I promise. At the end of our meeting, there is a list of three or four people every time. Hey, Royce, can you look at this? And and he's diagnosing... So far, everyone's kept their clothes on, nothing, you know, it's always been like extremities. Uh, every time, I last elder meeting, I get Royce, like my, I've been having all this pain in my elbow. It's like, it just like, I pick up a gallon of milk and it hurts and he's like, okay, stick out your hand. And he did something with my finger and I about hit the floor, you know, just in pain. Ah, I'm like, what's wrong with it? You're old. That's what he told me. <laughs> I was like, all right, thank you doc. Uh, we go to the doctor, we go to the doctor when we are sick. Why are mental issues and emotions different? Because here's what's happened in the church a lot of times around mental health is you need to read the Bible more. You need to pray more. Now, pause. Do we believe in the Bible at Hill City? Yes. Do we believe the Bible's important? Of course. Do we pray? Yes. but the Bible is not a fix it all for every little thing in your life. You don't do that when your elbow hurts. Well, I just need to read the Bible more so I can fix this. But when we jump into the conversation of mental health, whatever reason, we over-spiritualize and say, well, if you love Jesus, that should be fixed. If you love Jesus, you shouldn't be depressed, you shouldn't have anxiety, you shouldn't do this. At Hill City Church, we press against that. We say that is a lie from evil. As a matter of fact, Trauma, which by the way, we'll get to this in a second. Every single one of us has trauma. There are some that have really extreme trauma. Going through extreme trauma literally changes the makeup of your brain. So if you were here for Naked Truth, a talk with Emily and I did last uh, last Saturday night, I jumped out in the crowd and pretended like I was gonna bring someone up on stage. You guys, how many of you there, were there for this, right? It's funny, because Jeff in the sermon last week said, if I did this and I'd done it the night before and you'd experience it, how many of you, when I jumped out in the crowd to pretend like I was gonna get volunteer, how many of you felt your heart rate elevate? Raise your hand really high. Like start to get anxious, start sweating. I saw it on your faces, like, oh, fear. Here is why, when I did that, Your amygdala, which is a part of your brain that's like your alarm sensor, your amygdala fired and said, you are not safe. You're going to be harmed. When I walked on stage today, right here is a microphone cable, which looks a lot like a snake, okay? My amygdala, as I walked in, said, there's a snake, there's a snake, there's a snake. Now, I didn't flip out, because over time I've learned that that's not a snake. Now, if I was walking through my yard and all of a sudden I step over that, I would jump really high, right? So here's what happens. Our amygdala is part of our brain that warns us of danger. Our hippocampus is another part of our brain that that kind of brings us back down. Okay, so someone that's been through extreme trauma, their hippocampus, that part of their brain that brings it back down, can be shrunk up to 12% which is why if you've ever been around someone that's been through traumatic experiences, why something really small in the current can set them off. I was talking to a teacher out in the hall. She said, with my students, she works in a, in a low-income area, kids that are traumatized. She said, I have to be careful. If I put my hand on a child's back and they're not expecting it, they can flip out. Why? Because they, their amygdala says, that is your dad. He's getting ready to hit you again. Literally, trauma in our lives changes our brain. It shrinks parts of our brain. Emotions are part of living in the fall. Here's the reality. None of our bodies or our minds have escaped the fall. Neither one. Both of those are affected. But for whatever reason, we associate emotions, sadness, fear, anger, these things as, I shouldn't feel these. I was talking to a friend of mine. A guy in their family, their child has been going through some serious health issues. And one of the things he said, he said, when we were going through that, my wife grieved that and would, and would weep and cry. And it's like, well, yeah, she should. Here's what he said. It was hard for me to go there. I felt the need to try to fix it. I felt the need to say, no, we can't be sad. We just gotta press on. Somewhere in our wiring as Christians is this understanding that we shouldn't have any sadness, hurt, pain. We shouldn't deal with that. We shouldn't have these negative emotions if we love Jesus. We just need to fix it. We just need to think about good things, positive things. But here's what we forget is we live in a world plagued by sin. Plagued by the effects of sin. You, your heart, your body, your mind is affected by sin, yours and others. Like I have been hurt by people and I've also hurt. I've been gossiped about, I've also been the gossiper. I've been used, I've used others. I've been shamed, I've shamed, we could keep going, we live in a world that is plagued by sin. Here's the problem with so many Christians. We can't handle the complexity of living in a fallen world. We can't handle it. We can't handle the reality that kids get cancer and that marriages end and that parents harm their children. We can't handle it, so we just, well, I just gotta, I just gotta put, wrap all this stuff up in a nice little box, put a bow on top and say, well, God is good because we can't handle the reality that we're not in Eden anymore. As a matter of fact, I would argue many Christians don't believe the Bible. Because Genesis chapter three tells us that God's good creation fell, and because of that falling, there is now a curse and sin. This is the age of sin and death. That's That's what the Bible teaches us. But yet, many Christians, we expect this world to be home. We expect it to be kind. We expect it to be nice to us, to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and to have... Why? Because we don't believe our Bible. (laughs) The Bible does not expect that. Now, Genesis one and two expects that, but the rest is the reality that we live in a fallen world that affects us. Many Christians are afraid to be around death, to be around destruction, to be around things that they can't explain. A couple of years ago, I got the opportunity. Uh, on the way to Italy to see Giacomo, I spent a few days in um, Munich, Germany, and got to go to Dachau concentration camp and walk into the gas chamber and touch the bricks that were there to somehow, and in, in a certain level, understand hell. But 70 years ago, the woman who carried her little baby in her arms into that room, she knows hell. She knows it because we live in a world that's broken and the Bible doesn't tell us otherwise. The Bible doesn't wrap everything up with a nice little bow on top in every situation. Read the book of Jeremiah. Read the book of Job. Read Lamentations, a whole book on just lamenting of brokenness in the world. Read the book of Habakkuk. It will not cheer up your day. Here's a couple of quotes, here's Lamentations. The author, seeing destruction in Jerusalem. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit, my children are desolate, for the enemies have prevailed. He sees the destruction, he just says, this is awful and I have no comfort. Well, author, what about Philippians 4.13? Jeremiah, verse 20. Jeremiah was called by God to be a prophet to Israel. He was rejected by the people. Here's what he says. Oh Lord, you have deceived me. Now this word deceived in the Hebrew has a sexual connotation to it. Lord, you have seduced me. You seduced me into this calling. I thought I was gonna be this great prophet of Israel, but they want nothing to do with me. Lord, you have deceived me. I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. I become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision. That's, that's ridicule all day long. Hill City, Christians, have we forgotten the Bible that we are not in Eden anymore? Have we forgotten the story of redemption, a suffering savior? The story of redemption is one of pain and suffering and death. Have we forgotten that God himself in the flesh, Jesus, cried out on the cross, oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? And yes, when he cried that out, he knew the end of the story but he still felt it. He felt the loss, the pain, the sadness. Question, Christians, if Jesus was able to name the reality of living in a fallen world, why can't we? Why can't we? Why, why do we expect that this world will be free from pain? I should not suffer. God never promises that. Reality is we can't, many of us struggle to face the reality of living in this fallen world. And so we, we just, we have little statements to try to deal with that. Empty platitudes to deal with that. But there are deeper questions that our empty platitudes won't answer. Here's some that have been asked to me directly. Why would God bring me into the family in which I was raised? Where was God when I was raped? How cruel is it that God would take my unborn baby? How does God expect me to love a dad who continues to harm me? Do you think I can take those questions and put them in a box and put a bow on top? No. The reality is we live in a fallen world. Now we try, here's some statements. Well, you need to just let go and let God. (laughs) Whatever that means. Here's one, please write this down. Don't ever say this to someone. Where was God when I was raped? Well, what lesson is there in this? Please don't say that. There may not be a lesson in this. Well, everything works for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, that's called redemption when Jesus comes back. (laughs) But Jeremiah was right where God wanted him. Well, Philippians 4.13, I could go on a whole rant, I won't. Here's a good one, forgive and forget. See as Christians, we struggle to step into the brokenness, but the reality is we are outside of Eden now. And the reality is we now are in a world where we will be harmed and we will harm others. Hear me, to open yourself up to love someone parent, friend, spouse, to open yourself up to love someone is to open yourself up to be hurt by them. If you want to avoid pain and being hurt, share your heart with no one. Close off completely. That is the only way you will avoid being hurt. All, give, it, give your heart to a dog. They will always love you and wag their tail and come back to you. But to open yourself up to relationship is to be Harmed, and if if we're honest, the people that we care the most about are the ones that have the capacity to hurt us most. Spouse, parents, close friends. So to live in a fallen world is to name the reality that every single one of us in this room have faced and will face trauma, pain, hurt, regrets, mistakes, shame. Every single one of us. Now, we can talk about different types of trauma. We can say, well, there's capital T trauma. Those are the big things. And then there's little t trauma. Those are the smaller things. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. We have all faced trauma, divorce, embarrassment, failures, war. I was able to talk with someone this week who was a soldier. If you've seen American Sniper, The last scene where he's in the middle of it, this guy was in the middle of it right there. He has seen hell. He has been through trauma. Being used, abuse, the death of a spouse, the death of a parent, the death of a child. We have, we are people because of a fallen world and the reality is we have all faced trauma. Now here's what I hear and I hear it Every single time I, I get into people's stories of the trauma, here's the following, I hear it every time. Well, yeah, I know I have some stuff. I know I have some problems, but my problems aren't near as bad as others. Every single person says that. Here's my always the question, who are the others? Who is this group of others that their life has been so bad? The reality is every single one of us, like I've had people tell me that and then tell me a story where I just wanna go throw up in the trash can because it's that awful. The reality is we live in a fallen world, that fallen world, living in that creates trauma in our lives and it is, it affects us. Question, how much cancer do you need to have cancer? Does it matter if it's lung cancer or colon cancer? or cancer on your elbow? Is it, is it cancer? Yes, and it must be treated. One of the lies is, well, I've never been through this. Insert whatever you think this big trauma is, so therefore, I don't really have anything in my past. No, we have all been through trauma. We have some lies, well, time will heal all wounds. I just need to forget what Paul said. But Philippians 3.13, forget what lies behind and press on to what is in front of you. Yeah, Paul said that after he just named all the brokenness of his past. Hear me, church, when we refuse, all of us have been through trauma, when we refuse to engage And where our stories of our lives go unexplored is where we accept the reality to be bound to shame and contempt. Let me say this again. Where you will not engage your past, the stories of trauma, is where you accept the reality to be bound to shame and contempt. You will hate yourself and you will hate others. And you will deal with that by disassociating, by becoming hard, cold, Distant, demanding, lonely, isolated, keeping your defenses up. Saying things like, I will never let another man close to me. I will never trust my heart to a woman again. I will never be made a fool in front of people. Now I will work 80 hours a week to prevent that from happening. Where we do not face our stories of trauma and past is where we will live those out. Anyone seen, I haven't seen this yet. I was talking to some of our staff about this talk. Anyone seen the new Joker movie? I've heard it's really good. From what I understand, it's a story of a guy who was traumatized that didn't face it, which led to him becoming the Joker, the face of evil. Hear me, trauma that is not faced will be passed on to others. Every single one of us, trauma that is not faced we passed on to others. So, listen, it's easy to sit with the girl that's been abused and feel for her, but it's another thing to sit with the guy that abused her and to see into his heart and see no, he is not a monster. No, he is not a piece of whatever like he thinks he is. No, he's not worthless. That he is a guy that has harm in his past. Now, does that justify anything? Absolutely not. But it's seeing how the past shapes us. Hear me, harm trauma does not happen in a vacuum. There is a reason for all of it. And when we begin to turn and face our trauma and face those reasons, our failures become the stream in which God's mercy flows to us. One of the things I'm most proud about people in our church. So we have just one example. We have men and women in our church who have been addicted to pornography for years that are facing their stories. And here's what's really cool. As they begin to face their stories, their addiction to pornography becomes the stream in which the work of redemption works in their life. And it is beautiful that the work of Jesus is working in brokenness to bring life and beauty. Now, Big introduction to we all have trauma in our lives because we live in a fallen world. How do we handle it? How do we begin to process this? If you say, okay, Hood, you say I gotta face this, how do I do it? Here's the framework I'm gonna show you in Mark chapter three. Anger and sadness simultaneously, both emotions at the same time. Let's look at Mark three. Jesus enters the synagogue A man was there with a withered hand. So if you can picture a man who had a a deformity from birth and they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see what he would do. What's he gonna do on the Sabbath? Remember, one of the big things for the Pharisees is Jesus, you better not heal anyone on the Sabbath. It's so funny. They can can, uh, plan murder on the Sabbath, but they get onto Jesus for healing someone. And Jesus said, verse three, to the man with a withered hand, come here. So if you can picture the man coming to Jesus and Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, so picture, you got the man with the withered hand, you got these Pharisees who are sitting over there like, he better not do anything. Jesus looks at these Pharisees and said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, what you guys are doing? To save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around, Jesus looked around at them Anger and grieved sadness at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, "Stretch out your hand." He stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel on how to destroy Jesus. Jesus is in the synagogue. He sees the play out. You got these Pharisees who are supposed to be. God's representatives to, to lead Israel through the way God wants them to live. But instead, they are unkind, they lack compassion, they're judgmental, they're self-righteous, they don't care about the man who's had this birth defect. Like he, Jesus heals them and they don't care about it, they get mad and they go and try to find how, figure out how to destroy Jesus. Jesus sees that, yet he looks at this man who is unable to work and these days he would have been reduced to be a beggar, relying on charity, If you were here last week with the passage, here was the discussion. Every time this man walked through, here was the discussion. Well, whose sin was that? Right, that was last week's story. Was it his fault, was his parents? Someone obviously sinned because his hand is withered. And Jesus sees these two dynamics going on and what does he feel? Anger. Jesus was angry? Yes. Anger and grief, sadness. Anger at the system of oppression that was the Pharisaical system. Anger at the hard heart of the Pharisees. Anger at sickness. Like Jesus, think about this. Jesus is the only one in the room that knew what Genesis 1 and 2 was actually like. (laughs) He'd seen the reality before the fall. Sadness. He came to redeem Israel and Israel is rejecting him. Sadness for this man, he knew the isolation, and the shame that this man carried. This man couldn't enter the temple. Jesus knew that, he felt sadness for him. How do we deal with our past trauma and our current realities of hurt, abuse, neglect, harm? Anger, sadness. What's taken, what's anger? Because a lot of, when you first hear anger, you're thinking like, well, isn't that bad? Isn't that a sin? I didn't say rage. Anger. Here's what anger is. It's righteous anger at injustice. Righteous anger, when I see how things are that are not supposed to be, that's anger. When I see racism in 2019, because it's there, I should feel anger. I should feel Anger at this injustice. Yet sadness. So so sadness is the, the reality of loss or mourning that we live in a fallen world. Sadness is we're not in Eden anymore. Like as Adam and Eve are leaving the Garden of Eden, it's sadness. They knew that they were leaving home And they were now sojourners in a world that would be broken and corrupt. Anger and sadness. Jesus, anger, flips the temple, the the money changers at the temple, when he sees them exploiting. He's angry. Jesus, when he's walking into Jerusalem a few days before the cross, comes up over a hill to see the city. And here's what he does. This is Luke 19. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He didn't see the city, oh, all things work to the good of those who have Christ Jesus. He wept. Why? He sees all these people who are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, here we go, here comes our Messiah thinking he's gonna come and kick out the Romans, knowing that these people will reject him and in a few years, Rome will be besieged and many of these children that he's seen will be burned alive. He becomes overwhelmed with sadness and he falls down weeping. Anger and sadness. And engaging our stories of past harm and current, we've gotta have anger and sadness together Okay? Here, here's what sadness does. When I receive sadness or, or, or someone tells a story and I respond with like, oh, that's, like, that's awful, It's that's sadness. I open, we open one another's hearts to receive care. We open one another's hearts to grow in empathy, to receive comfort. That's what sadness does. Now, anger propels me to do something about it. That's why we need both. Sadness says, oh, I feel you, this, this hurts. When we live in a fallen world, I feel this with you, I will weep with you. Anger says, what can we do to begin to fight injustice? We need anger and sadness. The civil rights movement was not founded on sadness, it was founded on anger, but the anger propelled them to do something about it. The sadness and hurt of their people caused anger, which propelled them to act in a way where they begin to fight injustice. Simultaneously holding anger and sadness. You need them both. Sadness without anger leads to self-absorption, woe is me, wallowing. Anger without sadness leads to tyranny and bitterness and revenge. When Jesus saw the scene played in front of him, he held anger and sadness at the same time. Emily and I were with a, a couple this week, uh, some dear friends, we don't get to hang out with them as much and we got together, we're sitting in front of the fire at my house just talking and, uh, talking, and all of a sudden the, the, one, the woman, the other couple, she said, hey I want you guys to know um, that this week my dad, was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Brokenness. We're not needing anymore. We're in a place where people get terminal illness and they waste away, and it's awful. So she said that, and it it definitely brought a weight to the room that wasn't there before. Now, what do I do with that? Well, I could say, well, you just need to let go and let God. God works to the good of those who, here's what I'd said. That sucks. Like I felt anger. I felt anger of living in a world where that's a reality. And for many of us, that may be the end for us. And I felt it. Here's Emily's response. I'm sorry. Sadness. To then I respond to the woman. So this reality, like what's that doing in you? It's a deeper question to help her start to engage the heart. What she'd already been doing, and here's what she says this past week. She said, I've just been weeping. I've been grieving with the Lord, is her, is her words. And I've felt myself being angry at the reality. She said, my dad's not a believer and I don't know how to handle this situation. Here's what, like, we gave her no advice. We fixed nothing. We were just with her because she's grieving. She's not disassociating and dealing with it with, by drinking a whole lot. She's grieving. And we were with her in it. But somehow, and I want you to, it's like somehow in this grief and anger, Jesus is doing a work in her where she is starting to look forward to home which is not this world. She doesn't process those things, grief and anger, sadness and anger, she will become angry at God. And she'll start to believe that God has promised us this world, things won't happen like that. But as she faces it, something starts to happen where she begins to long for home. We've all been through trauma The two emotions that we see Jesus bring to a situation that was broken, anger and sadness. Now, how do we do this? This is what's not fun. Is healing requires facing the stories of harm and abuse and neglect and shame from our past. And it's awful. And it's beautiful all at the same time. To step into a story where you have said to yourself, I will never let anyone else see this ever again. And to name the reality of that story, and to be met with kindness and care and anger and sadness, there is a work that begins to happen in that. To engage your story is to engage the areas of trauma from your past at a deep level in the details. Like it's one thing to tell a story at 30,000 feet. Oh yeah, this happened to me. And I've had people tell me awful things and oh, this happened to me. And there's like no emotion on their face. But it's another thing to get into the details of the story because the details is where shame exists. The details of a look, of a sound, of a feeling in your body, of a reaction from someone else. The details is where shame exists lies, and so the way we engage and start to heal is in relationship with someone else, we begin to engage the details. Now, hear me, in relationship with someone else who's doing their own work, if you go to someone that's never faced their stuff, they will give you an empty platitude, but someone who's doing their own work to enter into the details where shame lies. It's the difference of me cleaning our kitchen and Emily cleaning our kitchen. When I clean my kitchen, I see a counter, I'm like, oh, there's some food there, let's wipe it off, let's sweep it up, we're good. Apparently, there's something called bacteria that you need cleaner to do and get into the, like bacteria exist in the crevices, doesn't it? Which is why Emily sprays it with the, whatever that stuff is and it, and it takes it away. It's entering our stories in the details with anger and sadness in relationship to other people where, heart, where healing begins to come. So here would be a metaphor that would help you understand what this looks like. I use this metaphor with people all, a lot. It's going on a journey with someone. And, and, I'm, and this person has been through some trauma that I'm walking with and we're walking down a path and it's like a paved road which would be really nice if all of our stories in our life were nice little paved roads. Anyone have that story? Of course not. Because these paved roads have little offshoots that are worn paths, and some of them then begin to be very steep crevices and drop-offs that are very, very dangerous and have a lot of harm in them. And to walk with someone through their story is for me to walk along, But this is the metaphor, to walk alongside them with my hand metaphorically on their back and to point to a trail, a path that I think, hey, do you wanna walk this path? Now, I will walk with you along this and I have no idea what we're gonna find down this path. I've never walked this path before. I've walked other paths with other people and myself. I've never walked this path, but I will be with you in it. Here's what it's not, shoving them down the path. You gotta go face this. You will re-traumatize people when you do that. It is a gentle nudge that says, if you want to go here, I will go with you. And I will name what I see. I will react to the things that we find. I will feel sadness on your behalf. I will feel anger on your behalf. And I will help hold those emotions with you. That's what it looks like to begin to engage our trauma. It's Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. As we walk with one another and we begin to speak the truth of what we see. Like, I want you to hear this. Your stories about yourself, your past are biased. You know who they're against? You. Almost always, not always. Usually they're against you. And you need to help of someone else to ask them really probing questions such as, where was your mom the whole time your dad was treating you like this? You were unprotected. You need someone else to point out, okay, you told me that you were in sexual sin, but you wanted none of this. Tell me how that's on you. See, harm happens in the context of relationship and healing happens in the context of a relationship. Now, here's what some of you are thinking, but Hood, I'm not a therapist. No, you're not, you're not. But that doesn't mean that with one another we can't begin to engage our stories with humility and care. I want you to hear this. If someone trusts you with your story, a lot of us, it sparks fear. Well, I'm not a therapist. I don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. Just respond to it. But failure to engage, actually you can end up doing more harm than good. Like you can be harmful to them because they finally trust you with their story and you're like, well, I can't handle that. And you, you push it away. Thus, them say, locking the keys and saying, I will never tell anyone else again. Anger and sadness As a framework to begin to process the hurt and the shame and the mistakes in our lives. Why? Why do this? Because it's awful. I'll just tell you, it's awful. Why do this? Redemption. The work of redemption is never an easy journey. It wasn't easy for Jesus, it's not easy for us. But as we begin to process with anger and sadness, healing and forgiveness begin to happen. So a few weeks ago, I got permission to tell this story from my wife. So just so you all know, I'm not gonna get myself in trouble, I don't think. Um, not for this anyway. I'm sure I'll get myself in trouble for something else. Um, three or four weeks ago, Emily and I had a pretty good argument. Like we don't, we don't ever really fight like loud and yell at each other, but we had an argument like, you lead the marriage conference, you had an argument? Yes, we did, okay? You'll, one day you'll understand if you're married. And I went to bed angry and hurt. Well, the Bible says don't go, okay, yes, I acknowledge that, I went to bed angry, okay? So did she, I went to bed hurt. The next day I wake up, she has to go to work, I have to come to church to write a sermon, that's all sorts of fun when you're trying to write a sermon when you're dealing with that. And I, and I tried to do some stuff like I can't, so I just got out my computer, and I wrote on a piece of, uh, on a a note, anger and sadness. And I just let it rip, (laughs) unfiltered. Here's what angers me about the situation. And it wasn't all about her, it was about me too. And here's what makes me sad about this. And I text her, I'm like, hey, I'm gonna send you something that's unfiltered, (laughs) and I sent it. Now, we have a relationship where I can send those things. Later that night, We're able to talk through those things and both of us express anger and both of us express sadness and guess what happened? Connection, goodness, redemption. When we refuse to name the truth of anger and sadness, we are not able to heal. And many of you have been unwilling to ever name, and some of you just have never had the option, the availability to, to get into your stories and name the reality that I was hurt, that I was wronged, that I did the hurting. Now I can, I'm gonna try to make this short because I can do a whole sermon on forgiveness. We need to do it at some point. But here's the reality about, like forgiveness is to cancel a debt, to release a debt over someone a debt being gossip to wish ill and vengeance on them, to be passive aggressive, is to release a debt. But hear me, forgiveness cannot happen without truth. Many of us under the disguise of forgiveness have said, well, I'll just let the past forgive and forget. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness must name truth first or we have nothing to forgive. So you may have been harmed by your, Dad, but your failure to acknowledge that harm means that he doesn't need Jesus. He's not that bad. When you finally name the reality, no, he was that bad, and the blood of Jesus was for him also, that's when God begins to do a work in you. But forgiveness requires truth. Your forgiveness from Jesus. Required truth, like the Bible's not shy about how broken you are. Uh, which one do you want me to read? How about Ephesians two? You were dead in your trespasses of sins, following the course of the world, following the course of the power of the prince of the power of the air, the sons of work of disobedience, among whom we all once walked, the passenger of flesh, carried out desires in the mind the body, and were by nature children of wrath. Well, that's nice, God. God's not afraid to name the reality of your brokenness because it's required for true forgiveness. Can you do that? Can you name the reality of the brokenness of the past, yours and others, so that forgiveness can begin to take root? Now, pause, here's what I'm not saying, because I don't want to get a bunch of emails this week. I'm not saying you need to leave church right now, you need to go to the person that hurt you and just rip them for all the things. Well, here's the truth. No, no, please don't do that. Take a breath. Naming truth to someone that hurt you will come after a long time of processing, but it needs to be the gentle words of a friend, not the bite of an enemy. So I'm not empowering you to go rip everyone that's hurt you in the past. But forgiveness begins to happen as we name the reality of brokenness. Others and ourselves. Let me close with this. Here's the thing we hear a lot about past mistakes that we've made. Well, Daniel, you just need to forgive yourself. No, you don't. I want you to hear on You don't need to forgive yourself. You need to receive Jesus' forgiveness. You are not Jesus. Your mistakes, what covers your mistakes is not your feeling bad about them and sorry about them. What covers your mistakes is the blood of Jesus. You don't need to forgive yourself. You need to name the reality of your brokenness. This is how evil I am. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made me alive even while I was dead. You don't need to forgive yourself. You need to name the brokenness, receive God's forgiveness. As you begin to become in awe of the mercy of Jesus displayed to you, then you begin to long for that for other people even the people that hurt you deeply. Now, is that easy? Heck no, it's a fight. And it's weeks and months and years of hard work to begin to let go of what, and to hold on to what true forgiveness is. But it's being transformed by the gospel that leads us to then help others be transformed by the gospel. So as a church, my prayer for us in our city groups and our small groups and our communities, if we can have communities where we engage one another's stories in deep levels, holding anger and sadness and walking with one another, speaking truth to one another, so that Jesus might do a good work among us. Let's pray together.